0: What happens when a dog interrupts a concert? That question was asked by Max Lucado in his book, When God Whispers Your Name. But to answer that, he says, come with me to a spring night in Lawrence, Kansas. Take your seat in Hog Auditorium and behold the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, the oldest continually operating orchestra in the world. The greatest composers, conductors in history have directed this orchestra. It was playing in the days, get this, of Beethoven. Some of the musicians have been replaced since then. (laughs) But you watch as stately dressed Europeans take their seats on the stage. You listen as professionals carefully tune their instruments. The percussionist puts her ear to the kettle drum. A violinist plucks the nylon strings. Clarinet player tightens the reed and you sit a bit straighter as the lights and the tuning stops. The music is about to begin. The conductor, dressed in tails, strides onto the stage, onto the podium and gestures for the orchestra to rise. You and 2,000 others applaud. The musicians take their seats, the maestro takes his position and the audience holds its breath. There is a second of silence between lightning and thunder. And there is a second of silence between the raising of the baton and the explosion of the music. But when it falls, the heavens open and you are delightfully drenched in the downpour of Beethoven's third symphony. Such was the power of that spring night in Lawrence, Kansas, that hot spring night in Lawrence, Kansas. I mentioned the temperature so you'll understand why the doors were open because it was hot. The auditorium, a historic building, was not air-conditioned. So combine bright stage lights with formal dress and furious music, and the result is a heated orchestra. Outside doors on each side of the stage were left open in case a breeze were to come through. Enter stage right, the dog. (laughs) A brown, generic, Kansas dog. Not a mean dog, not a mad dog just a curious dog. So he passes between the double basses and makes his way through the second violins and onto the cellos. His tail wags in beat with the music. As the dog passes between the players, they look at him, they look at each other, and continue with the next measure. The dog takes a liking to a certain cello. Perhaps it was the literal passing of the bow. Maybe it was the eye-level view of the strings. Whatever it was, it caught the dog's attention, and he stopped and watched. The cellist wasn't sure what to do at this point. He'd never played before a canine audience before, and music schools don't teach you what dog slobber might do to the lacquer of a 16th-century Guarneri cello. One of the most expensive in the world, by the way. But the dog did nothing but watch for a moment and then move on. Had he passed on through the orchestra, the music might have continued. Had he made his way across the stage into the motioning hands of the stagehand, the audience might never have noticed. But he didn't leave, he stayed at home in the splendor, roaming through the meadow of music. He visited the woodwinds, turned his head at the trumpets, stepped between the flautists and stopped by the side of the conductor and Beethoven's third symphony came undone. (laughs) The musicians laughed, the audience laughed, the dog looked up at the conductor and panted, and the conductor lowered his baton. The most historic orchestra in the world, one of the most moving pieces ever written, a night wrapped in glory, all brought to a stop by one wayward dog. The chuckles ceased as the conductor turned. What fury might erupt? The audience grew quiet as the maestro faced them. What fuse had this dog lit? The polished German director looked at the crowd, looked at the dog, then looked back at the people, raised his hands in a universal gesture and shrugged his shoulders. And everyone roared. He stepped off the podium and scratched the dog behind the ears. The tail wagged again. The maestro spoke to the dog. He spoke in German, but the dog seemed to understand him. And the two visited for a few seconds before the maestro took his new friend by the collar and led him off the stage. And you'd have thought the dog was Pavarotti the way the people applauded. (laughs) The conductor returned to the music and it began and Beethoven seemed none the worse for the whole experience. And he asks the question, can you find you and me in this picture? I can just call us Fido and consider God the maestro. You see, sometimes it takes an outrageous situation to illustrate an outrageous truth. Often it is the unpredictable that brings to light the inconceivable. Sometimes it's only by staring into the face of outrageous sin that we are exposed to the light of outlandish grace. And grace is what we need this morning as we come to the table of the Lord. For each one of us is part of an outrageous situation. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. We have all of us, each of us, wandered onto the stage and disrupted the maestro's music. So what should we expect? What do we deserve? What are we prepared for? This morning I want us to put ourselves in the position of that dog on that stage. Coming into God's presence, we ought to be overwhelmed with a sense that we really don't belong here. At least not without adequate preparation. So what's required? Well, there is one person who knows, David, King David. He's been in that precarious, awkward place. At one time, a man after God's own heart, in constant communion with his Lord, An enviable musician under the maestro's direction, suddenly by his failure, he's feeling like a dog in the midst of an orchestra. That's the great thing about the Bible. There's no veneer. There's no airbrushed portraits. There's just reality. In all of its ugliness, and that's what Psalm 51 says. Is all about. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 51. I want to read a few verses to begin out of the Living Bible Translation, give you a little bit of picture here. Psalmist writes, O loving and kind God, have mercy, have pity upon me, and take away the awful stain of my transgressions. O wash me, cleanse me from this guilt. Let me be pure again. For I admit my shameful deed. It haunts me day and night. It is against you and you alone I have sinned. I did this terrible thing and you saw it all, and your sentence against me is just. But I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. You deserve honesty from the heart. Yes, utter sincerity and truthfulness. Oh, give me this wisdom. Sprinkle me with the cleansing blood and I shall be clean again. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And after you have punished me, give me back my joy again. Don't keep looking at my sins. Erase them from your sight. Create in me a new, clean heart, O God, filled with clean thoughts and right desires. Don't toss me aside, banished forever from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to other sinners and they, guilty like me, will repent and return to you. Don't sentence me to death, oh my God. You alone can rescue me. And then I will sing of your forgiveness for my lips will be unsealed. Oh, how I will praise you. You don't want penance. If you did, how gladly I would do it. You aren't interested in offerings burned before you on the altar. It is a broken spirit you want. Remorse and penitence. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not ignore. You ever felt like David? In Psalm 51, we realize what God requires as we come to this table. We recognize that worshipful communion with the Lord requires the personal preparation of our hearts. But how can we prepare? Well, the answer is by putting our own lives through the grid of David's experience here in this song. It's a time for the spiritual celebration of God's grace, an individual confession of our sins, our personal commitment to spiritual change, and the joyful communication of God's truth. In your Bibles, some of your Bibles may have a title underneath Psalm 51. The title in my Bible reads like this, a Psalm uh, for the choir director, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now the background to this Psalm, as you may know, is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And without reading through all of that, basically, I'll give you a soundbite of what's going on here. You know the story probably if you've been in the Bible at all for any length of time. David's walking around on his roof. He sees this beautiful woman bathing herself. He lusts. He covets. He sends for her. He takes her. He lies with her. And then he tries to kill her husband placing him in the front line of the fiercest battle and told the rest of the army to withdraw from him that he may be struck down and die. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty six, 26, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But listen to how that verse ends. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet, and he came to him and he said some words and he painted this portrait of a parable basically. about a man that didn't want to sacrifice his own lamb and went and took the only one of a poor man so that he could use that instead. And David's anger burned greatly against that man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for this lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan then said to David, you're the man. You're the guy. Verses 9 and 10, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, the prophet says, by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. In verse 12 of 2 Samuel 12 we read, Indeed, The prophet says, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That's grace. What's the difference between this and what we saw in Saul? Because it doesn't say here. But we know there was a difference because here God says, Your sins taken away. There must have been real repentance in his heart. But that mark and that stain was always there because if you look at 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5, we read about David says that David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So even at the end of David's life, that mark was still there that he had committed that sin. Now we need to realize something at the outset as we look at Psalm 51, that this is not an entry into David's personal journal. This is a psalm specifically to be used in public worship. What's it say in that title? For the choir director. This is a psalm to be used in public worship like we are gathered here this morning. How many of you would like to have your greatest, worst sin put on this stage, and we sing about it. It's an amazing thing to me. that David, a high-profile national leader, guilty of blatant adultery and cold-blooded murder, did not keep his sin a secret. There was no blame shifting like Saul. There was no glossing over it. This was a public expression of David's repentance. It was confession, pure and simple. That was the difference between what we encountered with Saul and what we see in David. Can you imagine that happening today? Can you? What does that say about the way we deal with sin today? We cover it, we whitewash it, we buy it off, we deny it, we don't deal with it, but deep down inside we know that it's not going away. The mere fact that David dealt with it in honesty showed that his heart was genuinely God-centered. He threw himself on the mercy of God. There was no point in trying to dodge the issue. He knew that God knew. You think that's how he wants us to come to this table this morning? In honesty? God says that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the truth is that God forgives. Amen? He restores. He renews when we come to him with a broken and contrite heart. And so that's the first thing that we need to realize in Psalm 51 here is that a worshipful heart claims God's Grace. Look at the first verse in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. A worshipful heart that is prepared seeks God's mercy. Coming to Him by grace means that we make no excuses. No apologies, no explanations. We come with one thing looming before us guilt. We're guilty as charged, and we're crying out for God's grace. And we know that it's available. Micah chapter 7 in verses 18 and 19 says these words, and it could be a prayer of ours this morning. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's a great words of scripture, of promise, of grace. There's loads of God's grace and mercy available to those who will come boldly into the throne room in Jesus' name. I often tell the story of a poor woman from the slums of London who was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday at the ocean and she had never seen the ocean in her entire life but when she saw it, she burst into tears and sobbing. Those around her thought it was beyond strange that she should cry when such a lovely holiday had been graciously given to her. Why in the world are you crying, they asked. And pointing to the ocean, she answered, that's the only thing that I've ever seen in my entire life that there's enough of. (laughs) Folks, whatever you're coming with here today to this table, you need to know this, that God has oceans of mercy. There's enough of it for you. You can never, I repeat, never exhaust God's mercy as long as you keep seeking him in Christ. Receive God's grace. That's number one for preparation. Why? Because it's based on two things according to this verse. It's based on his covenantal love. David uses one of the strongest words in the Old Testament to describe God's unchanging loyal love. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. That's God's unconditional, unfailing, undeniable love. It is faithful even when you're not. Even when I'm not. Even in the face of our unfaithfulness, and you know what that is? That's grace in a nutshell. Grace. Grace. And then it's based on the second thing, his compassionate mercy. It says here, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. His compassion stems from the deepest kind of love, greater than the love of a mother for her child, stronger than the tie between a father and a son. It's this gut level love that stems totally from personal choice, God's personal choice. And it's not based on any condition. It's not based on how we look, it, not based on our accomplishments, not on our nationality, denomination, not on our social status. God's compassionate mercy is based solely on his choice of you. Solely. Isaiah chapter 49. The prophet writes in verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. But can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I, God says, will not forget you. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is what he's saying to the nation of Israel. Imagine what he's saying to you and me through Christ. We know what he's saying to you and me through Christ because it was said in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God and not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So when we look at this table and consider its meaning, we realize the immense outrageous kind of love that god has for you and for me it gives us this whole new perspective on what john 3:16 is talking about when john wrote for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that's amazing grace that's amazing love how can it be the song says because it's god's compassionate covenantal kind of grace Is love, that's how. Donald Gray Barnhouse once said said it this way. He said, love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches out is affection. The love that stoops and reaches down, that's grace. And as we come to this table, we need to humbly claim the grace that God has offered to us. So claim God's grace. That's what a worshipful heart does. That's number one. Number two, a worshipful heart confesses its sins. Look at verses two through nine. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden parts you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Someone has once, once shared a great line with me. He said that it, sin wouldn't be so popular today, you know, if God judged it immediately. Heard me say that probably before, but we tend to forget that the results of sin may not be immediate, but I'll tell you one thing they're inevitable. It took David a full year to finally confess his guilt, an entire year. It wasn't until the prophet Nathan confronted him that it all fell apart. How long will it take you if you're denying something? If you've got sin harbored in your heart, how long is it going to take before God finally gets through? Some of you have been harboring sin for a long, long time. Learn from David. Confess it. Deal with it don't come to this table unless you do. In the early days of the church, God dealt with sin immediately in order to emphasize the need for purity in his people. When people took communion in Paul's day and they weren't right with Christ, sometimes they became sick and even died because of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that. Paul writes about it. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats The bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, meaning die. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Can you imagine just for a moment what communion services would be like today if God dealt with us on the spot like in that day? We probably celebrate it once a year. If that. Not once a month, or in some cases once a week. But you know, the answer isn't avoidance. The answer is compliance. We need to personally confess. That's what that's what David did. Note the pronouns in this section that I just read, actually throughout the whole psalm. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Blot out, wash me, cleanse me. David wanted this stain gone once he he finally admitted that it was there. When he says, wash me thoroughly, the Hebrew literally reads, multiply to wash me. Multiply to wash me. Over and over and over again. Scrub it clean. David sees himself so stained with sin that he needs repeated washings. Scrub me, he says. Erase those marks. The stain of sin saturates us like ink on your skin. No matter how hard you try to get it off, it stays there. I remember years and years ago, my wife, when I was in Bible college, used to babysit kids in our home as a means of income because I wasn't working. And there was this one family, this one guy that uh, he had a daughter that would my wife would watch. And I remember one day she came to the house and she had this big red spot on her forehead, like a rash. And come to find out she had written ink on her forehead and her father wanted to get it off and couldn't get it off with soap and water, so he used an SOS pad <laughs> to get it off. There's only one cleansing agent for sin. The only hope that we have when faced with the permanent stain of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't wash it off. You can't scrub it off. You can't use a spiritual SOS pad to get it off. Because it'll leave a mark. The blood of Jesus Christ, says John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, cleanses us from all sin. This morning, Jesus is repeating to each one of us exactly what he said to Peter on the night that he instituted this table. Staring into Peter's eyes with a basin at his feet and a towel in his hand, he said, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Confession begins with a personal request to be clean. Secondly, confession demands a personal recognition of our sins. That's in verses 3 through 6 here. I already read it. David says, I know, for I know my transgressions. True confession makes no attempt to conceal anything from God. It's very upfront. It's authentic. There's no hypocrisy. There's no sham. True confession is not simply a dead acknowledgement of sin like Saul did. I have sinned. No, but it's a personal living sensitivity to it. Isaiah 59 and verse 12 says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. We know our iniquities. It begs the question do we recognize our sin? Do we recognize it? Notice also that it's David's own sin here. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's not concerned with everybody else's sin. He's concerned with his own When we come to the communion table, it's not what so-and-so has done to us that should concern us. It's not even what we have done to so-and-so that really takes primary concern for us, but what we have done to God. Look at what it says in verse 4. Against you, and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak. Remember when Joseph counteracted Potiphar's wife's approaches. What did he say? How could I do this evil thing and sin against God? Sin is ultimately against God. Joseph recognized that in Genesis 39. David recognized it here in Psalm 51. And we, you and I, must recognize it. We answer to one, the audience of one, ultimately, Every sin is fundamentally a revolt against God. That's just the definition of sin. And he's totally right in judging it according to David here in verse 4. God hasn't broken his word. We have. And by the way, something else we need to recognize, every one of us is an expert at it. Great sinners are not made by the way they're born. Whereby nature bent toward it. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin, my mother conceived me. David is admitting the fact that he was a sinner from earth. We're born sinners. Whereby nature bent toward it. God hasn't broken his word. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, who continually does good and never sins. These are wise words written by Solomon. My friend, sin is inherent within all of us, no exceptions. Consequently, we all need some radical renovation, don't we? Can't deny it. A person with a worshipful heart confesses he or she personally requests deliverance, personally recognizes his or her sins, and personally seeks revival. That's in verses 7 through 9. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. These extreme situations require extreme measures and David took no chances here because he saw his sin as the most extremist kind. He knew he needed the remedy with the greatest purifying power. In his day, that was hyssop. Hyssop, which was the instrument used, To sprinkle the sacrificial blood of cleansing upon an unclean person. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 14. When When a leper was cleansed, they used hyssop and sprinkled blood on them. Upon the doorposts and the lintels during the exodus. What did they put on the doorposts and lintels? The blood of the lamb, right? What did they use to spread that out? Hyssop. Christ is the fulfillment of that symbol. He is the remedy with the greatest purifying power. This table that we're about to receive and partake in represents the cleansing of sin that Christ accomplished at the cross. The shedding of blood, the sprinkling of blood, the pouring forth of blood to cover us and not just to cover our sin, but to take the guilt away. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 21 and 22 says, And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And in Matthew chapter 26 verses 27 and 28 This is Matthew's version of the Last Supper. He says that when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Martin Luther translated this verse Unsin me with hyssop, verse 7. Unsin me with hyssop is how he translated it. That's exactly what we need, isn't it? To be unsinned. To be unsinned. That's all we want to be, isn't it? Clean. We don't want God to look at us and to see division or anger or selfishness or pride or deception in us. We want him to see us clean, spotless, without blemish or wrinkle, don't we? We don't want to hear the voice of condemnation. We want to hear the voice that says, I forgive you. And there's only one way for that. One way to be washed, one way to hear the sound of joy, the sound of God's voice saying, not guilty. There is only one way for God to forget the way that we've treated him. One way to blot out the mess that we've made. We need a new heart. Period. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. He says, what Moses with the tables of stone could never do, Christ does with a pierced hand. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, a worshipful heart is committed to change. Beginning in verse 10, love these verses. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, Lord. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. Here's a joke for you. Question, how many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? (laughs) Answer, four. One to change it, three to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Somebody heard that before. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? There are no light bulbs <laughs> to change. <laughs> You've probably heard about the guy who took his old car to a dealer and asked him to sell it for him. When the dealer saw, asked how many miles were on it, the man replied, well, it's got 230,000 miles on it. And the salesman replied, you know, it's never going to sell unless you turn back the odometer. So the man left, and when the car salesman hadn't heard from the guy in several weeks, he called him. He said, I thought you were going to sell that old car. I don't have to anymore, came the reply. It's only got 77,000 miles on it now. Why should I sell it? (laughs) Here's the problem. Too many people think they could please God by simply changing their external behavior and dialing back the sin. They're only fooling themselves because what we need is a new heart. As we approach this table, we begin to realize that, like David, we need more than just a clean heart. We need a recreated heart. Create in me a uh, clean heart, oh God. God is in the business of creating new things, causing things to exist where there was nothing before. Create in me a clean heart. He says, it's the same word, that word create, that was used in Genesis 1.1, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. David knew that he needed a complete inward change, something completely new. He knew that it required power way beyond his capacity. And we need that same change. And we cannot make it happen. You cannot make that happen. Only God can cleanse us from the inside out. Only Christ can recreate a heart. True purity cannot be achieved by personal effort. We can change all we want to on the outside. But unless we allow Christ to transform that heart on the inside, our lives become nothing more than whitewashed graves. That's what Jesus said. According to Jesus, the hypocritical Pharisees were not clean. At the Last Supper, Jesus said that Judas was not clean. How many of you are not really clean in this place? Because you have never received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I don't know the answer to that question. Only you can determine that. But if you haven't, and only you know who you are, please don't participate in this communion table. You'll only be hurting yourself. Because someday you'll have to account for it. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 11. No, we need a recreated heart. The answer is to ask God to recreate your heart. And we need a renewed spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then we need a resumed relationship, a restored relationship with God. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. If there's unconfessed sin in your heart, there's a wall in your relationship with God. Although in the New Testament, a believer can never lose his salvation or lose the indwelling Holy Spirit, unconfessed sin will cause you to lose your intimacy with God and your usefulness sometimes to God. He may put you on the shelf. That was David's greatest fear That's why he's prayed these these words because he'd seen it happen to Saul. God took the spirit away from Saul. God put Saul on the shelf. And a couple of serious compromises and a refusal to exhibit a heart of repentance and Saul's leadership went down the tubes and David was not about to let that happen and neither should you and neither should I. Want to live a miserable life? Ignore your sin. Keep it hidden. Want to have joy? Confess it and forsake it. Simple axiom. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And then we need a restored joy in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You need restored joy this morning. For eight years, Sally had been the Romero family pet. When they got her, she was only one foot long, but Sally grew until eventually she reached 11 and a half feet and weighed 80 pounds. And then on July 20th, in 1993, Sally, a Burmese python turned on 15-year-old Derek, strangling the teenager until he died of suffocation. (laughs) Associated Press Online quoted the police as saying that the snake was, quote, quite aggressive, hissing and reacting, unquote, when they arrived to investigate. Listen, friends, God has repeatedly, repeatedly warned us throughout the scriptures that sins that seem so little and so harmless at the beginning will grow to be huge things and ultimately strangle the joy of your salvation. As long as it's there, you and I are going to find it hard to breathe. We need a restored joy. And we need a reinforcement of our purpose in verse 12. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Here's something that has made a profound impression upon me lately of a lack of a willing spirit among so many people. I don't know if it's just the condition of the world, apathy setting in, but the lack of a willing spirit, an attitude that is ready and willing to turn away from sin and to embrace God's will, that's the mark of a recreated life and a worshipful heart. And the inevitable result of that is in verse 13 we will see reproduction in others then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you the best teachers my friends are those who have experienced firsthand what they're trying to teach who's better equipped to communicate forgiveness than one who's been forgiven that's you and me if you're in christ That is why God has left you and me weak and imperfect sinners saved by grace in this world to communicate his salvation to others because we've experienced it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And he says, yet for this reason, I found mercy. What reason? So that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's why. And then he breaks into this doxology, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why you're here. That's why God's left you on the earth if you're a Christian. That's why he's left me on the earth because we are to testify to the fact that you can be forgiven for sin because we've experienced it. You know what? It takes a changed life to change a life. And so not only is worshipful heart marked by a claim to God's grace, a confession of our sins, and a commitment to change, but finally a worshipful heart communicates God's truth communicates God's truth. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I saw a message on a parked car at a grocery store. Once it read like this, God forgives, let him. And that's the real heart of the issue here. Let him. Don't try to bribe him with empty promises. Don't try to negotiate a deal because there is no deal. The deal's been done. There's nothing more you can do except to come to him with a broken heart and a humble spirit. Jesus Christ gave his life. How could any of us add one thing to that? We need only to come humbly to him admitting that we've blown it and that we need him and we need him alone to fix it we need to declare that we are totally and completely at his mercy. And it is that truth that we need to communicate as we come to this table. That truth. Psalm 34, verses 8 and 18, it'll be on the screen, but it says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a counterpart to that when he says in verses 3 and 4, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So, like a wandering dog in the opening story, You and I are guests of the maestro, aren't we? When we walk onto his stage, we know, like David, that we don't deserve a place there. We didn't earn it. But the music of grace is music like, none like we've ever heard before. And he welcomes us with open arms. In the Old Testament, anyone who sinned as David did needed a word from a priest or a prophet indicating that he was forgiven. Only then could he participate in worship again. In Psalm 32, David, which is a counterpart to Psalm 51, actually they're out of order chronologically. Psalm 51 comes before Psalm 32 in the spiritual scope of David's life. But in Psalm 32, David testifies of that word from God that he's forgiven. In Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, David says, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. In the New Testament, that word of forgiveness is eternally inscribed in the words that John wrote in 1 John 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's a closing story. Virtuoso violinist, Pinchas Zuckerman, was given a master class to a group of young artists who had come to the Aspen Music Festival from four corners of the world. The auditorium was filled with their peers and distinguished teachers and performers, and the atmosphere was electric. But to each of the talented performers, Zuckerman offered friendly advice and encouragement, discussing their playing, each of them, in detail, and invariably picking up his own violin to demonstrate the finer points of technique and interpretation. Finally, came the turn of a young musician who actually performed brilliantly. And when the applause subsided, Zuckerman complimented the artist, then he walked over to his own violin, caressed it, tucked it under his chin, and paused for a long moment, and then without playing a note or uttering a word, he gently placed it back in its case, and once more the applause broke out, and this time it was deafening in recognition of the master who could pay so gracious a compliment to the student. Now folks, when we approach this table, With a prepared heart, claiming God's grace, confessing our sins, committed to change, and communicating his truth, instead of a shrug or a sneer or a slap or a curse or a word saying, this is how you should have done it, God restores us to a right relationship with him. And he did it with David. And he did it with Peter. And he did it with Paul and he will do it for you.